The American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this special episode, we're excited to share an archival interview from 1964 with legendary cinematographer James Wong Howe, ASC. In it, film archivist and associate member Kemp Niver and Howe take an incredibly deep dive into the cinematographer's long and illustrious career. I was taking some stills one day, and uh, Mary Miles Minter walked by. I made some shots of her. Getting to her a couple months later, I'm called into Mr. Charles Eiton's office. Eiton was general manager. Yes, for last year. And I thought, oh, something happened now. I don't... Sit down. Congratulations. You know, you're chief cameraman now. He said, well, she wants you as her cameraman. So go down and see her. She wants to see you. But first, the September 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now with a special focus on wildlife photography and a cover featuring the work of filmmaker Beverly Jobert, courtesy of Wildlife Films. It ties into our feature story, Documenting Nature, in which wildlife filmmakers share their perspectives on capturing the natural world. Also in this issue, Director of Photography Edward Roqueta sheds light on the illicit jaguar trade in the award-winning documentary Tigre Gente. Cinematographer Anicia Uzeman's birth country of Rwanda provides inspiration for the Afrofuturist fantasia Neptune Frost. And the career of Academy Award-winning cinematographer Robert Ellswit ASC is profiled. In it, Ellswit opines on his inspirations, his collaborations, and maintaining a classical approach to filmmaking in the digital era. Also be on the lookout for a shot craft on lens coatings and a virtual world report on the short film Life Rendered. In Clubhouse news, this past June, the Society's International Cinematography Summit attracted representatives of more than 30 cinematographer organizations from around the globe to participate in talks and discussions at the ASC Clubhouse, as well as presentations at Dolby, Harbor Picture Company, Netflix, Sony, and XR Studios. A wide variety of subjects were covered, including large format photography, virtual production, diversity and inclusion, set safety, and the physiology of human perception. You can read a more detailed account of the summit in this month's issue of AC. The ASC occasionally offers professional development seminars designed to bring its members up to speed on the latest developments in cinematography. The most recent seminar was held in July and focused on virtual production. The program began with an online pre-production session and continued in-person on an LED volume at Nant Studios in El Segundo. Check out our expanded coverage in this month's issue of AC. While these intensives are members-only affairs, the information and knowledge gained will be applied to future ASC masterclasses that are open to the public. And speaking of ASC masterclasses, this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skill set, this five-day seminar is taught in Los Angeles by top directors of photography. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques and instruction in current workflow practices. Specialized instruction may cover such subjects as commercial product lighting, the use of drones, and virtual production methods. In-person instruction takes place at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities, with all necessary equipment provided. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. The final in-person sessions for 2022 will take place on October 17th through the 21st and November 7th through the 11th. The November session will have a special focus on shooting motion picture film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. The ASC's archives are a treasure trove of Hollywood history, and from time to time we come across a true gem. This is one of them. The following interview was conducted by film archivist and associate member Kemp Niver with James Wong Howe ASC at the Cinematographer's Home on April 3, 1964. Niver received the ASC President's Award in 1991 for his work restoring the paper print collection of historic films from the Library of Congress. James Wong Howe was a pioneering cinematographer in Hollywood, nominated 10 times for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, and winning twice 
for his stunning black-and-white work on The Rose Tattoo in 1955 and HUD in 1963. From 1922 to 1975, Howe photographed over 130 motion pictures, many of them film classics. In this wide-ranging interview, Howe discusses his long career and provides the listener with a unique glimpse into his creative mind. This is an interview uh, with James Wong Howe at his house on April the 3rd, 1964, and it's about his progressive life, the early camera. Now, the first question I want to ask you, James, is how did you first get interested in photography? We're not talking about moving picture camera work, but how did you get interested in photography? Well, let me see now. That goes way back. Oh... About 1907 uh, or 8, when I was just a uh, young kid. Where was that? Up in the state of Washington, a little town called Pasco. Pasco, Washington. Yeah, that's, that's where, <clears throat> when my father first came over this country, See, they were building the Northern Pacific. Yeah. And he worked on the railroad. Yeah. And so uh, I was born in China, you see. I no, I didn't over, know that. Yeah. I came when I was five years old. What part of China were you born? Uh, in Kwangtung uh, province. Canton? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I had a little little pigtail when I first came over. You're kidding. This is before, uh, yeah, this is before uh, uh, the, 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 the China became a republic. You know? Sure. Well, you so were anyway, your uh, celestial grandfather was going to take you to heaven with it. With yeah. It. You had a little pigtail. Yeah. Oh, this is interesting. Well, anyway, uh, I bought a little uh, box brownie. And it cost a dollar or two. It didn't have a finder. Oh, yeah. See? I bought it in a drugstore. I remember the man's name, the owner of the drugstore. His name was uh, John Sullivan. So uh, I bought this camera and uh, I took some pictures. And I asked him how to develop it. So, you know, he told me to go down and turn off the light in the basement and took some uh, developer and uh, take uh, unravel this and hold it up and just do it up and down and count so many counts. See? So, I did that. Was this your first roll of film? Yeah. And uh, I turned on, after I got through counting with a number of counts, well, I turned on the light and I held up a piece of thing it was red on one side and black on the other. Well, what I did, I, I developed a wrapper. <laughs> so I ran back to him and said, look, this he said, well, look, you developed this, but how can I tell in the dark? He said, well, you moisten your fingers and you touch the end, and it's a little sticky, that's it, see? So <laughs> now I go buy another roll. This time I go take some pictures. And... Went through the same procedure and counted and turned on the light. And, by God, there was something on there, you see? Yeah. Uh, Ruined your whole life. <laughs> yeah. Took pictures of my brother and sister, you know. And, but uh, most of the head were cut off and some of them had heads in it. I couldn't, you know. And I showed to my father. Well, he, he was um, old-fashioned in a way. And he was superstitious, you know. Yeah. Chinese didn't want to have a picture taken, just like the Indians. Well, they still don't. Yeah, and uh, so he, he didn't like it. He said, well, look, if you're going to take pictures, he said, be good if you got their heads in it. You know, you're taking it out heads, that's bad. So I told him, and he gave me, I bought a brownie now with a little finder. little finder on it. Yeah, that's, that's when I became interested in photography. And then I always had a camera. You had a camera... Photographically, then you started out with yeah, a box brownie. Box Most brownie. of the cameramen alive today that have worked yeah. as professionals got ruined by Eastman. They used to sell these little cameras for a dollar. Yeah, that's <laughs> and right. And then they learned that's how, how to That's how I got it. And then I, later on, I got little uh, cameras now. And then I remember the, they had... Now, you were a very small boy at this time. Yeah, I was a kid. About 10, 12? 10, 12 years old, uh -huh. yeah. So then we go through the different uh, uh, phases of uh, with a Kodak and taking pictures and. Well, now 
did you get into interested in photography professionally as a still cameraman, as a still photographer? Well, what happened was I came down here in Los Angeles. I was skipping a lot of period, but not uh, didn't have in mind to get into the movies. Oh, you had your father was working for the railroad, and then your whole family moved down, or did just you? No, it's just me. See, my father had passed away during the meantime. He he passed away around 1914. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's right. And then I went and lived with my uncle for a while in Astoria, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And from there, I went to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I my ambition was at the time at that time was to uh, learn flying, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a uh, flying school down near San Francisco, I think it was in Redwood City, um, but I came down, but my money ran out, and then I came down here, well, what did I do, I didn't have any trade, you know, so I just got, took any kind of job, uh, job as busboy, and, and I finally wound up with a job uh, deliver. Boy, for a commercial photographer. Which uh, one was it? Uh, Raymond Stagg. Stagg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He used to have a, yes. his studio down on Hill Hill and 8th or 9th, yes. someplace there. And I used to ride a little motorcycle, a little Cleveland motorcycle, around delivering uh, pictures. Uh, I worked for him all, this was in 19, uh, all latter part of 1916. Now, uh, I worked with him about, oh, several months or more, and uh, something happened. I got fired. Um, some Chinese man wanted to, uh, some uh, going back to China, he wanted some passport pictures. So I told him I'll make them for him, and I took him up to the studio there at Stag's uh, late one evening and had all the lights on. Uh, taking pictures, and then Ray Stagg came in, and, and I had his best lens, you know, and <laughs> he didn't like it, got finger marks all over it, <laughs> so anyway, I got let go, so uh, I was down around Chinatown, I used to go down there, uh, have, you know, eat mm-hmm. Sundays, and sure. meet some of the boys, I didn't know many people. So uh, they were making a, a movie, a, a comedy, because uh, people running around. Uh, and I looked at the cameraman, and uh, he had his cap backwards, grinding away. And uh, who do you know it was? It's Len Powers. He's uh, in town here now. Sure. Well, I knew Len from up around there, for Pasco, because he was a boxer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came through there, and that. Uh, uh, I met him and uh, one night and uh, oh he, I went to see this boxing match and he got his jaw broken but he kept fighting and uh, so I knew him just not too well but I, I, I to say hello oh yeah and I see it was uh, Len Powers he was a cameraman and uh, I said hello Len he said oh hi kid and he says uh, uh, where did I see you before? I said, oh, up in Pasco, Washington. And I told him the night. And, oh, he said, yeah. He said, what are you doing down here? I said, well, nothing. I'm looking for a job. He said, you ought to get in this uh, racket. He says, very good. <laughs> he said, I get uh, $50 a week, you know, doing this. Said, How do I get in? So he told me to go to the studio and ask for whoever's head of the camera department and might get a job as an assistant and that consists of uh, carrying equipment you know mm-hmm. and holding up a slate what to do well a couple months went by I think I went out to uh, came out to the Lasky Studios it was called Lasky's Famous Players on Vine Street and I went up and asked information desk Oh, they said, yeah, you want to see a man by the name of Mr. Wyckoff, Alvin Wyckoff. <laughs> uh, he is the head of the camera department. He's also chief cameraman for C.B. DeMille. You find him around the back gate over in 
Argyle Street, where the laboratory is located. So I went back there and waited and waited and, and uh, I couldn't get in and waited a couple of hours. And finally, uh, a man came walking down and somebody says, there's Mr. Wyckoff now. He's a man. So I call out and uh, he told the gate man, let me come in. Went into his office. He said, what do I want? I said, well, I want a job as assistant cameraman. Oh, he said, well, it's too bad. He said, I just put a fellow to work a couple of hours ago, you know, and I, I don't have, have a place for one now. And he says, besides, he says, you're pretty small. You couldn't carry this uh, equipment. Oh, I said, I thought I could. You know? mm -hmm. But he said, got talking and asked what I've been doing. And I, Told him I've been delivery boy for a stag and you know, been any jobs around. He says, Well, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> I don't need an assistant, but I could use you. I give you a job, it's not an assistant, and doesn't pay much money. Get about pay ten dollars a week. It's all right. I said, Sure. I said, I'll take it. I said, what's my job? He said, well, come on down, I'll show you. He took me down to the camera department. <clears throat> and uh, another fellow was standing there, and I looked at him. He was a bald-headed fellow. And uh, he was fooling around with a camera. And uh, I find out his name was Harry Hollenberger. <laughs> yeah. See, he became a cameraman years later. He just passed away, mm -hmm. Harry. I went down to see him a few months ago before he passed away. Down the Laguna, he was uh, 86 years old. Or something. Why, oh, Harry was fooling around. So um, Wyckoff says, "Well, you see, these fellas, they throw this paper and pieces of film around, and they said, you know, this film is highly explosive, and I want somebody around here to pick it up and keep this place clean, put it in this big barrel over there." And uh, when time comes, well, if I need another assistant, well, uh, you've got the chance, see? So that was my job, was keeping that uh, camera room down there. The swamper in the camera department. Yeah, that's right. I was a swamper. And, well, the boys used to bring their cameras down, and uh, they want to, you know, this was day before the union. Some of them, they used to work late. And, Come early, and a lot of them uh, uh, would uh, leave their cameras there and, and ask me if I wipe them off for them, you see. So I did. Tried to learn about cameras. Yeah, wiping them off. What were some of the cameras they were using in those days? Mostly Path A's. Mostly all Path A's. Mm -hmm. You know, like the uh, mills people usually use Path A's. Yeah, Path A. Well, anyway... Um, it was a Japanese cameraman, Henry Kotani, um, was there. Uh, he used to photograph Sesu Hayakawa, mm -hmm. who was a big star then. Sure movies. he was. And had, uh, Henry was, they tell me, he was quite a good cameraman. But uh, they had a hard time keeping uh, assistance with him. I don't know why. Uh, so they thought they put me with him. <laughs> That's a I get along. Yeah. Well, I worked one picture with Henry. I remember that was the first picture. Uh, I really went out assisting. Uh, it was with Lila Lee starring. And a boy named Harold Goodwin played the lead. And the director was um, R. William Neal. Roy Neal, they call him. Well, they use a Pathé camera? Yeah. Can you remember the kind of lens they used? Oh, I think it was a Gertz lens or a Zeiss Tessar. Hmm. I forgot which one yeah. it was. I think the lens was um, 50 millimeter. Mm -hmm. Three, five, or four, Three, five, or, or something like that. Well, that was my first picture with Henry. 
Rhino Lally. Uh, this must have been oh World War One. Yeah, around it's around the old early part of uh, spring of 1918, probably, because mm -hmm. I I went there around the uh, uh, fall of 1917. This was World War One then. Mm -hmm. And now I remember working with Henry uh, on the Armitage Day, you mm -hmm. see. I remember, gee, that was quite something, because I lived downtown above the Third Street Tunnel there on the Hill Street. And, oh, there was quite a racket. Good. I used to get on the streetcar and come out to Vine and used to pass that wonderful big set that Griffith built for intolerance. Yeah. Stood there for many years. Yeah. Well, it used to cost a nickel to come out, nickel to go back. That was 10 cents a day. We worked six days a week then. That was 60 cents a day for car fare. 60 cents a week. A week, rather. And then my uh, breakfast, um, Julia Heron, she was later a script clerk for George Melford. Her mother had a, a little cafe there across the studio. We used to go there and get coffee and a couple of donuts for a dime. Sure. That was a breakfast, you see. Sure. So $10 a week in those days, uh, you, you, could, you could get me by because my my room only cost me uh, $2 and a half a week. See, today you can't get that for a day, you know. <laughs> right. And it went a long way. So uh, $10 a week, I managed. But you were doing what you were like, you seemed yeah. like to do. Went along pretty well. So, uh, did you work as an assistant? Did you load and unload uh, cameras, and did you work in the developing room, or did you learn anything about television? Oh yeah, I well we we learned you know how to wipe the camera off and and uh, load and unload, and also we had to load and unload the stills. Mm -hmm. See, there were uh, eight by tens, mm -hmm. glass plate. Mm -hmm. the, the, they didn't have a still man those days, you know. The, the first cameraman. He he took the stills, mm -hmm. but the assistant had to pack all the stuff. You said that your first uh, the first man you worked for was a Japanese cameraman. Uh, where do you think he learned his photography in this country? Uh, he he learned he learned from Alvin Wyckoff. Oh, I see. He was an assistant with Alvin Wyckoff. Oh, see. Well, I didn't work with uh, Henry very long because we didn't get along. Mm -hmm. So uh, did you have to develop help him develop your the glass plates, or did he do that himself? Oh, I think. Uh, in those days, I think they had a still developing place mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the lab, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, I don't remember him developing them. But anyway, I developed my own pictures because mm -hmm. uh, I, I I I went and bought a five by seven view camera downtown on these pawn shops, and I used to take pictures for the extra people, you know, and bit players. Mm-hmm. You see, in those days, Kemp, uh, they didn't have agents. No. Uh, I've looked at some old uh, yeah. trade magazines, and it was just like a phone book. That's <laughs> right. Each studio had their own casting department. Sure. Um, then people would leave their pictures there, uh, full length, one full face and profile, you know, each. And in the back, they wrote down their name, address, and what they could do. Mm -hmm. Ride horse or play polo and all this stuff. Sure. And so they needed pictures from time to time. And uh, I remember making pictures of Bill Boyd and all these fellas. Um, <laughs> he was a little boy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and they paid me 50 cents a piece, you know, enlargement. And, you know, I made pretty good money. Sure. Uh, at the same time, I learned how to make uh, good portraiture. Mm -hmm. And that's what a close-up is, anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A close-up is, is like a good portrait, you know? Well, that's right. If one learns how to light a portrait, you can light a close-up. Well, as a professional camera of some note, yeah. if you'd say that a man had to learn photography, the thing that uh, if you had to find somebody in a hurry... You go look for a still, a still photographer that took portraits. Yeah. He'd understand lighting. Sure. Arthur Edison, I think, was a portrait man. Oh, yeah. You know, you oh, yeah. I got along very well. And then 
I, uh, I became Alvin Wyckoff's one of his assistants. Um, of course, Demel those days always had two or three cameras. So uh, I was second on some pictures that, uh, oh gosh, who else was a cameraman? I remember making the Irvin Woolock picture. Tell me something. When did you first really feel that you understood how you could get or capture a scene photographically? So that, uh, when do you, do you think that you first started to get a feel for photography so that you could throw a key light in and a fill? Uh, did you well, think before you actually started uh, as a boss cameraman? Oh, yes. I think I began to uh, know how to light faces when I was making these pictures. Mm -hmm. And then I used to, uh, during, after a picture, I used to make these uh, uh, title backgrounds photographs, soft focus, mm -hmm. you see. I had a, uh, I bought a meniscus lens yes. from a optician on Hollywood Boulevard. I think he's on Highland now. His name is Deborah D. Gray. I remember yes. the name. Mm -hmm. It cost a dollar and a half. It was a, about a 13-diopter meniscus, and the, it was a soft focus. Mm -hmm. um, when you focus it, you had to focus it. When it was a little out of focus, mm -hmm. it was sharp because you focused on the visual ray, and you had to rack it back for the photographic ray, you know. And I used to make these uh, title backgrounds. Oh, like the next day, and dawn came, and mm -hmm. that evening the man went out, you yeah. know. And, uh, and Meanwhile, time, back at the as time went by, uh -huh. we get an hourglass and yeah. a sand glass, you mm -hmm. know, and all these things, illustrative uh, backgrounds for the titles. Mm -hmm. Well, that gave me a great, uh, uh, a fine uh, education in composition. This was done at the studio yeah. for for Al. Well, for anybody I worked for it with in those days to make a picture. And that's when I was even the second camera, you know. Oh, well, this is interesting. See? You started shooting titles. Yeah. Today it would be like a That's a right. I would make a Western. And I'd, during, uh, after I'd lunch or something, I'd see a nice cloud or a cactus. I'd, I'd shoot this out of focus. Then at the end, I'd make these things. I'd show them to the, the director. I said, look, would you like these for a uh, title background? He said, oh, yeah, swell. And I'd give them to him for... Title background, you see. Yeah. And then... Uh, did, you have, did you have a little uh, a bench that you uh, set the moving picture camera up? No. Well, I, I shot these on a 5 by 7 Oh, I see. You see? And then I gave them the negative. Uh -huh. Now they would enlarge them and then they use yeah. them uh, for the, the title department. would use them later, you yeah. see? Well, that gave me a, a, a good education on composition. composition and also lighting. It started just thinking about it. It started me thinking, started me to be seeing, you know, mm -hmm. using my eyes to visualize and look. The way a, a, a camera lens right. would see something. So uh, now, oh, then Bert Lennon was cameraman for, oh, big director there in those days called, we call him Uncle George. His name was George Melford. And uh, Paul Perry worked with him for a long time. And Harry Perry was Paul's assistant. And uh, then later, Bert Glennon was his cameraman. And I was a, a second camera to Bert. We were making a picture over Santa Catalina Islands there in the Isthmus called Ebb Tide. And they had a rain scene one night. And we shot it. And uh, next day, uh, George, Uncle George asked me, well, how'd you like that? That was pretty good stuff last night when we shot, wasn't it? He said, look wonderful. I said, you won't see it on the screen. And he got mad at me. He said, what do you mean you won't see it on the screen? You're crazy. I said, well, there was something too much backlight and it just became a white sheet all over. He said, you're crazy, you're crazy. Then he got thinking, he said, well, why didn't you tell me that yesterday when, when it happened? He said, now the stuff's gone into the lab already. Oh, I said, well, you know, it's not my job to tell you. It's a, it's a <laughs> bird. Yeah. I said, well, I'm not supposed to tell you those things. 
He says, uh, why not? He says, uh, he didn't say why not. He said, the hell not. He says, because uh, uh, you're, you're, you're working for me, you, you know, and uh, if you see anything wrong, you, you better tell me. See? He says, from now on, anything wrong, well, you tell me. But uh, I was very hesitant because, you know, you, you're disciplined in those days. Sure. Boy, when you're an assistant, that's something they don't have today. Boy, when you're an assistant, you know the, the move. You know where you sat. And uh, and if you're a second camera, you, you, you just don't open your mouth much. No, all you were doing was backing up your boss. Yeah. So, by God, there was a message came back. They couldn't see those scenes. They had to retake it. See? <laughs> I guess he wanted to know how you knew. Yeah. And then so they, he said, well... You're right, Jimmy. He says, see, we've got to remake it. And uh, so they remade it. So uh, George Malfred, you see, after that incident about the rain, now he had confidence in me. And he said, oh, Jimmy, uh, could you uh, take over until Bert gets a return? See? So I did. And uh, lighting the long shot, I remember it was a kind of a log cabin that... Uh, um, and uh, I lit it with uh, splashes of light here and there. You see, well, that was my first uh, taste of photographing, being the first camera. And that was Art Catalina. Yeah. Did you come back to the studio and shoot anything? No. Well, this was in the studio. Oh, I see. Uh, we were at Catalina. Mm -hmm. See. Well, um, then one day I happened to be uh, taking some uh, pictures of... Uh, what kind of money are you making now? 50 a week? Or maybe more? 15. Oh, you're still you're 15 a week? Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make 50 a week until I got to be a cameraman. <laughs> That's what I got paid for. <laughs> That's funny. I became one of the assistants with Alvin. And then uh, I think I worked with a boy named Harold Schwartz then. He's passed away. And there was another chap that came to work with us, George Myers. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, but you were working for Blasky at that time. Yes. And Your first few years were at that's Blasky. That's right. So uh, I finally graduated to uh, becoming uh, what we call second camera. See, we didn't have uh, camera operators in those days because uh, each cameraman operated his own camera. Sure. You crank by hand, sure. you know. Um, now, you had the second camera that had the master camera and the one alongside of it for the... Uh, foreign version. Foreign version. Negative, they yeah. call it. They didn't make duplicate negatives. They didn't make duplicate. Yeah. That's why we had the second camera. When the first cameraman would set up, line up, we'd get as close as we can and try to duplicate the same setup as for, for the foreign negative. Mm -hmm. And same stop. So that it'd That's be the right. same co right. contrast. And we watch how you, uh, you know, let. And by that time, we'd already learned how to crank, you mm -hmm. see. Well, and used to, every chance I had these cameras, I'd start cranking them. And, and uh, well, as a matter of fact, I had a little thing at, in, in my room I used to crank, you know. I bought one of these little old, found one of these little old, uh, secondhand stores, old little coffee grinder things, you know. Yeah. You have it at home. Mm -hmm. I just set it on the edge and just took that and it just cranked. Just to you smooth see. your arm yeah, and wrist, huh? that's right. Get the uh, crank and we'd count, count the, 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 fr uh, the footage, uh, foot, uh, one foot a second, see? We used to say one and two and three and. Because mm -hmm. uh, in those days, uh, they didn't have counters in some of the cameras. No, that's right. So... Uh, I could be any place, and I would hear uh, Mr. DeMille say, all right, camera, and, and I hear him say, cut. I could tell him how many feet to run. Mm -hmm. Well, then... Uh, Just instinctively, you started counting in your head. Sure. Mm -hmm. Then Mr. DeMille used to rehearse. So he had an idea, and he got a, one of these beater counters mm -hmm. to put on the camera, and With had a, a crank put on it, you see? Mm -hmm. And uh, my job then, an assistant was then, when he started rehearsal, he said, camera, I would crank this thing, and when he stopped, well, I had to show him how many feet. How many feet you see? Why did you think he wanted to know that? 
Well, I think for his timing. I see. See, whether the scene is too long or whether mm -hmm. you could shorten it, whether mm -hmm. you, you know, mm -hmm. you want a timer. Well, I kind he of... He was getting pretty specific in yes, his early ages. Yes, uh, In the early days, he said, this guy was thinking all the time. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Because now, I mean, he did a very interesting thing in, in, in those days. I remember he had a picture where Theodore Roberts played a blacksmith. And he was pulling the bellows, and you see the flame. And out of that, he pulled out the horseshoe. You know the flame and the horseshoe, when they pull out, and when they hit it, it was all fiery red. Everything else was black and white. Yeah. You know, that was a tremendous effect. Sure. Especially with orthochromatic film. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they did. They had a process called Henshecko or something in those days. And they processed it. And then Hal Rawson came over. From He came out from New York. Mm -hmm. And he was shooting. And I became uh, his second assistant. I mean, I, mean, I became his uh, camera. Uh, uh, second camera. See? And uh, we got along quite well. Um, Are you still on Pathé cameras? Yeah. But he had a Bell and Howe. Yes. And I had a Pathé. Yeah, there's a picture of you on the wall at the ASC. Uh, of you two together. Yeah. Huh? Oh, is that right? Uh -huh. Yeah, well, that was in probably 1920, See that... Um, Wall in the pool hall. Oh yeah, is uh, all filled with pictures that Arthur Miller and I have been digging up. Oh, and I up see. There. Well, I may have some downstairs. I might find. Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah. Better anything. Well, anyway, I, I was just second, and then I, how I became a cameraman was uh, really when I I was taking some stills one day, and uh, Mary Miles Menner walked by, and I made some two three shots of her. Uh, I developed them, enlarged them, and gave them to her uh, later, and them uh, by 14 prints, and uh, she liked them. A couple months later, I'm called into Mr. Charles Eiton's office. Well, Mr. Eiton was the uh, general manager. Yes, for last year. <clears throat> yes, at that time. And I thought, oh, something happened now. I don't... Sit down. Congratulations. Uh, you know, you're chief cameraman now. Oh, boy, I tell you, I didn't know what to think. He says, um, Oh, boy, $20 a week. He said, well, she wants you as her cameraman. So go down and see her. She wants to see you. So I went down and I knocked at the door, dressing room, and she said, who is it? And I said, Jimmy, Jimmy Howe. They all come on in. I went in. She was, had those pictures there on her dressing table. So she told me why she liked the pictures. And she liked them particularly because... I had made her eyes go dark. Well, she had very pale blue eyes, and in those days, you know, with orthochromatic film, <laughs> they don't out when you watch sure. So she said, I made her eyes go dark. What, That's how why did you she do liked them. Well, I'm coming to that. Oh. I said, gee, <laughs> yes, I walked out. She said, well, we're going to make a picture in two, three weeks. And I walked out, and I said, my I wonder how God, I, did how I made her eyes go dark, see? So I went back there to where I made the picture. I stood where she stood, and I stood where the camera stood, and I remember I had a key light up on the side and the fill. And if we want to keep all the light out, we pull the dark diffusers over, and if we want diffused light, we have the white diffusers. If you want sunlight, you just pull all the diffusers back. Well, I stood and looked. I stood where she stood, and... On the wall, there's a big piece of black velvet, oh, 25 or 30 feet stretched out. And I, I think Mr. Wyckoff had been using it, making double exposures or something, you see? Mm. It was left there. And she stood facing that. And I went, said, well, this must be it. It must be the black velvet, black reflection. So I ran that little mirror I went back and I stood and I would tip to there and it would be black. I'd tip it up to the white diffuser, it'd be light. So to make a long story short, I uh, make a close-up. So I had a big frame built, oh, five or six feet, and had a little hole cut in it where I stuck it, my lens through, you see. Uh. And I made her a close-up for that. Well, I'm playing the light kind of up high, didn't have to flatten her out. Give her a nice modeling. 
and I, I used to pull up that, raise up that black claw. Well, she liked the close-ups, and her eyes did look darker, you see. It got around that Mary Miles Mentor had uh, imported himself an oriental cameraman, yeah. and he hides behind black velvet, <laughs> and he makes her eyes go dark. But then I became a, <laughs> a genius in town, you know? Yeah. Everybody had light eyes and sure. wanted me to. <laughs> You're a, a sorcerer. So I had offers then, you know? I was getting $50 a week. Now I'm offered 75 and $100 a week. And um, so I go back and I tell Mr. Eiton, well, you know, when they get you in there, they by the time you get through with you, uh, you work for nothing, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, that's right, I on the ropes. So Mr. Eiton said, well, now, Jimmy, I'm, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a contract. And I always made big pictures uh, in those days. I worked with then, after Miss Minter, I worked with uh, Herbert Brennan. Yeah. And I made uh, Peter Pan, and I made the uh, Paula Negri pictures, you know. Well, uh, you started out on a Path A camera, and then you went to a Bell & Howell. And you're still cranking a camera. When did yeah. you first stop cranking a camera? When sound came in? When sound came in. When sound came in. Yeah. Were you out at MGM then? I was at MGM, and I made a trip to China. I took some time off. I went over there around 1928 for a few months. And when I came back and sound had got a hole and, uh, by golly, you know, it was hard to get a job unless you made a sound picture. And yeah, you never so made one. I never made one, <laughs> you see? So I went around here for about a year, a year and a half without making a picture. But what I did was I made... I produced, directed, and photographed a picture of my own, uh, the first Japanese talking picture. We made it over in uh, Monrovia in a packing shed. Uh, on this, uh, Sound picture? Yeah, on records, on photograph oh, yeah? records. And the column, the, it'll call it the Kellum process. Terry Kellum, he's still around, the son of Kellum. He's the one who recorded it. And we made this full-length picture. And it cost about twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, twelve, fifteen thousand. Japanese talking, and I got the money back in this country. But in Japan, uh, it didn't go because the Japanese talk different over here in Japan. They laughed it off the screen. Oh, uh, see, a fellow named Tom White. Well, the Japanese fellow that was the star, and it was an American Japanese. Yeah, all. Oh, yes, oh, all because. Oh, no, that wasn't very smart. No, I, you guys. I, one boy was a waiter down here in a Japanese restaurant down here. Uh, near um, near Gardner, and another fellow was a vegetable man, and we found a student. But the student, his name was Henry Okawa, uh, he became a big star in Japan. Yeah. Uh, but now I think he's a assistant director or something now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, then uh, I met uh, William K. Howard, and uh, he asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm looking for a job. He said, look, Jimmy, they, I'm, I'm in a doghouse here at uh, Fox, down in Western End. Yes. 20th Century Fox. Yeah. It's Fox. He said, they've signed me two, three cameramen, and uh, they've taken them away from me. He said, uh, come over tomorrow. I think I'll see me. I'll, would you make some tests? See? But I didn't like those lenses they had over there, somehow or another. I bought myself some lenses, and I told Bill Howard, I said, look, keep me on for two, three weeks anyway, at least, so if these tests are not right, <laughs> uh, they don't like them, well, uh, I can pay for these lenses. Yeah. So he did, and he flew around, made more tests, and it was a picture called Transatlantic with Edmund Lowe and uh, Gene oh, Hirschholt and yeah. uh, with Myrna Loy. And, 29, 30. Yeah, 1930, yeah. I think yeah. it was. That's 33 years ago. That was my first sound, uh, sound talkie. And there's a little key, and I shot everything with a 24-millimeter lens. See? The whole picture. Exactly, the whole picture. I don't think I use anything wider than a 30-millimeter, or 32, 30-millimeter. 30 but I used a 24-millimeter. And it gave it that. We had the perspective, and it gave it that long uh, perspective, force perspective, on this ocean liner. And Gordon Wiles, and I used to ask him to narrow the sets down because they're using this wide angle. We got into terrible arguments and almost lost friendship of that. But uh, at the end, he won an Academy Award, you know, for the set. 
I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what my nation or not, but <laughs> you got too many. Um, I remember Mr. Shallot uh, wrote about it, and it got good notice because of this forced perspective, a deep focus, you know, carried focus. Yeah. Uh, well, um, see, great lens great, makers yeah. were learning how to bring out good glass that was fast. You know, you guys were finally getting down to a place where you had a, a 2.5, maybe a 2.8 lens, and you could stop down. You get a little yeah. heat in there. You but know? you know those old lenses, those F3.5 or Helier and all those, yeah. are, they're good lenses. Today they're good lenses. See? Yeah. Um, well, what the heck. Optically speaking, mathematically speaking, you can't find a better depth of focus point than 3.5. That's right. But a lens should be made. Now, if you're going to use a... Uh, stop a f5.6 outdoor, the lens should be made for f5.6. That's right. You take a f1.9 lens and stop it down to 5.6 or uh, 11 or 16, boy, oh you're not used to that, 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 what the lens was made no. for, you see? Well, I don't know that I'm, I don't consider a camera, uh, I just work at it, but uh, uh, photography is a, quite an art. But... Uh, I don't ever, all my lenses, of course, and the type of work I do have got to be fast. But uh, outside, I'll stick neutral density filters to yeah. keep the lens open. That's right. Uh, well, that's yeah. why we used to shoot our close-ups, you know, wide open, you mm -hmm. see. <clears throat> Today, uh, they stopped down more. Today, with the, uh, like, panel vision and large screen and uh, uh, <laughs> they want more sharpness. depth of focus. <laughs> so, well, we were on your... Your early sound pictures. Were you working in a doghouse? No, I wasn't. I mean, I. But that lens got. I mean, that picture, Transatlantic, uh, was a big hit, and uh, it's got rave notices. Yeah. And it, it got Bill Howard, William K. Howard, out of the doghouse, and and I got a contract from uh, Fox. I think I had a three-year contract, and I went from Fox to places accepting. I never worked at Universal or uh, Republic. Well, you've been a big league cameraman for 30 years, and uh, uh, once you're a big league cameraman, they usually don't let go of you anyway. I mean, uh, uh, yes, and I've, I've been mostly, uh, uh, I was under contract to uh, Fox, I was uh, Salznick, MGM, oh. you know, then I went to England for a year. Sure. Uh, came back and I went to Warner Brothers. I was Warner Brothers 10, 12 years. And from then on, I went uh, freelancing. Mm -hmm. Well, you're at that age bracket now in your particular league that you work just as long as you want to work. Here. Yeah, well, I made a couple of years now. Sure. And uh, I just finished uh, Outrage with uh, Martin Ritt, Paul Newman out at MGM. I think we got something very interesting. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Tell me something. I'm not. This isn't part of the yeah. interview, but it'll be on the uh, in HUD. What did you use, filter-wise, to get the? Uh, that's it, it. Almost looks like the old sepia print. Uh, what did you use? Well, you know what, uh, Kim, I didn't use a filter on on uh, HUD. I used it once. I think it was a twenty twenty three A. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was when uh, the shot, uh, when the big scraper went by and yeah. saw the father, the grandson, and the son standing there. And I wanted that sky to be mm -hmm. kind of dark. Yeah, you want to puddly. Yeah. When did you first start learning about filters? It's about the time anybody else did? Well, I started learning about filters um, when I first used panchromatic on a picture called Alaskan with Thomas Meehan. Uh, it was around 1924 or 5. You didn't start fooling around with fillers then until panchromatic film came That's out. right. Mm. Because orthochromatic wasn't much good anyway. It wouldn't make any difference. Now, when we shot the interiors here at the studio, I, I used orthochromatic see, uh, film. X-Pac, we used to call it. Yeah. Now we go to Canada and gee, with these beautiful clouds, skies. So I took some panchromatic up and I put a light red filter on it took the shots, and the Mountie's coming out of the door in the cabin, you know. 
Down the road, down the road away. You see, this beautiful mountain scenery. Well, you know what happened? Two, three days later, you know, we got a wire back from the studio. Said, why do you fellas change uniforms on these uh, coats on these uh, mounties? He said, you got white uniforms on them now, coats on them instead of the dark. Well, the wardrobe man went crazy. He said, no, they're the same one. And the director couldn't figure out. <laughs> I, I, I finally figured. I said. God, it must have been those red filters, you see? Eliminate the red color. Yeah, so, well, better make it over. Something wrong with that film or something. Nobody knew, you see. But the lab man said, well, yeah, the lab man. He said, well, it's a panchromatic film, and he stuck some filter on it. Well, finally I had to tell him to put a red filter on it. Well, they got mad at me, you know. And they said, well, why use this stuff? He said, stick to the stuff you've been using inside. I said, well, I, I want to, you know, capture this beautiful scenery up here. With the other orthochromatic, I wouldn't get it. So uh, let's, let, let me use it over again, see? Make the scene over and panchromatic. Uh, no filter and uh, the red, you know, it wasn't, uh, didn't go white, but it was a little lighter. The scenery was beautiful. Well, we got very good notices on it, you see? <laughs> Sound came in and... Uh you say that you didn't have to get into a booth like some of the cameramen did? No, that, that, they have uh, done away with the booth. They had, had a big... Uh, this business of two years of being out of work, uh, they got blimps by the time you... Yeah, we had them. a big blimp. Some big blimp. <laughs> Bathtub. Yeah, they're, oh, they're big ones. But the microphone, you know, it's a problem. That was the one that always um, got in the way. Uh, by lighting from top down a little, say about 45 degrees or something like that. You'd have a boom in there. Yeah. But uh, I tell you, in that picture, that one that I made, uh, we're just talking about... Uh, Transatlantic? Transatlantic. I had the art director put ceilings on all the cabins, you know, on the boat. Uh, oh, so that I'm, I had the really light from the floor. See? Uh-huh. And keeping the light lower, that helped to eliminate the mic shadows. Well, you could also hide the mic a little bit better, too, because you get Those a fixture yeah, in it or something. Fixtures and and uh, we had a very good uh, mixer, and he helped out a great uh -huh. deal. Well, wasn't that uh, rather unique, uh, putting ceilings in on purpose? Yeah, you know why? Because it, would, it forced me to light a little different. Well, would would I mean after all, uh, you've uh, learned to put a key light above the point of the lens. Well, even so, you know, Kemp, when you walk into a studio and you see a living room, a bathroom, no matter what kind of a room, uh, you know, a log cabin or anything, a bar, funeral parlor, could be anything. There's no ceiling, and you the minute you see this catwalk up there, is loaded with lights. Sure. And the first thing you know, you walk in, everything becomes a habit, and man. I hit that one down here and hit this one across the wall. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> put this one with a snoot on it and put it on his face. Now put this one back here for a backlight and hit that chair with this one. Well, what happens? We'd be getting lights coming from places <clears throat> you really don't belong, huh? Don't belong. In other words, you, you've got a source of light, literally. Now, that thing that you did with Burt Lancaster, uh, Sweet, smell of success. Sweet Smell of Success, boy, yeah. that was a heck of a job. Yeah. Just walking in and out of light and darkness all the way. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I've heard a lot of professional cameramen, maybe they wouldn't tell you this, but I think they would. But in discussion, uh, a lot of professional cameramen have a lot of respect for that particular thing. Of course, it takes a man that's been in the business a long enough time to get away with it. A lot of people couldn't get away with a job like well, that. Well, I tell you, I don't think it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a matter of getting away with anything. Uh, let's face it. I think uh, photography, whether it's motion pictures or still, is an art form. It it's is. recognized now. Now, we take an artist and he paints. Well, it takes him many years. He starts he knows the technique. He learns it so well that he doesn't pay much attention to the technique of it anymore. Now he's got such a knowledge. <coughs> feeling. Yeah, feeling for it. 
He paints very free the way he feels, the way he sees. His eyes see things that the usually the, uh, another person or the man on the street, they don't see the same thing. No. They see it differently. Yeah. They see color into something where uh, one without the trained eye would never see it from there. And so they start to paint these things in. When they get finished, they got a beautiful picture. Freedom in it, the lines, composition, and expression what the artist is trying to say. Well, artist paints with a brush and color. A photographer, he has the medium of lights and film. Oh, he's got. See, to paint. So we have to learn then our technique. Now, we just say, take for granted now, cameraman knows his technique. Now, what's he do next? Well, if he's a mechanical photographer, he sticks with the technique. Yes. He's going to use that meter. Mm-hmm. It depends on that meter. He says, I want a uh, 200-foot key light, and I want my fill light to be 150 or 100, 2 to 1 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And from that way, he photographed every scene exactly that yes. way. Stereotyped. Now, what comes out? It comes out just like a mechanical piece of photography. It has no feeling, no whatever. Uh, you don't know what the photographer or the cameraman is trying to say with his photography, with his lights, uh, with his camera and his lenses. It, it's just a nice photograph. Technically, it's fine. It's perfect. You see? Now, um, I think that the photographer, when he's really fulfilled, he's a grown, uh, he knows his technique, but... Uh, he should I add know, something to he, it. He should add something, uh, his expression, the way he sees it, the way he feels towards it, the subject matter, the character, the set, whatever the story is about. Well, we, we cameramen on the motion picture business, we're always uh, telling a story, photographing a story. We got to know what the story means. If it's a gangster picture, it's one thing. If it's a, a musical comedy, it's another. Um, in, in the picture, each sequence, they have different sequences. This sequence means that. It's early morning. This one's late in the evening. This one's noon. Now, uh, we've got to light these things accordingly. Now, I, I would say that uh, the average audience, they can't tell why, but when they see something that's right, that's true, and they believe it, <coughs> they appreciate it. So my concern is, will the audience believe this? Can I, I want to make it so that they believe it photographically. I'm not, uh, uh, technically I know that that will come in. And uh, do I really want technical perfection or do I want really dramatized uh, photography Mm -hmm. that expresses something? Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in making all my photography absolutely perfect technically. I I like to see little rough edges here and there. I don't want to make it so perfect, the polish, the high polish, that I lose all the values. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? I certainly do. I like little accidental things here and there. Mm-hmm. A little overexposed here. If I'm shooting the in, indoors, I want, and with hot sunlight outdoors, just like you see in HUD, that outside is really burning hot. Now, the inside is in half tones, something in deep shadow. But you feel cool inside, because in the relationship, everything is relative. If we have white and dark, and I believe in using dark areas and half-tone areas, but it's a matter of, uh, of placement, a matter of uh, composition. Uh, they used to say, well, I'm a low-key. They call me low-key how? Uh, it's not because low-key, a lot of people misinterpret low-key the meaning using a very low footage canon, lighting very little... Uh, Illumination and weak illumination, and then it's diffused. Say using 50 foot candle rather than 150 foot candle. 
they think using 50-foot candle is low-key. That's not low-key. Low-key is something, a, a, a balance of dark areas against light areas. Because mm -hmm. we need light to get exposure. Right. If we use such a low-foot candle, 25 or 30, then it's going to look grayish. The picture will not have any strength. And if you're going to make a melodrama, you know, you've got to have strength. And the only way you get strength is to have good deep shadows and good clean white highlights. See, and that will give you strength. Uh, like an artist, if he's going to paint a rock, he'll use a bold strokes sure. of uh, black and severe edges yeah. the Now if he wants to paint a willow tree, he'll use another mm -hmm. kind of a stroke, a little lighter. Well, how does an artist, a photographer, light this, uh, you light it a little more diffused, you know? So I think... Um, um, Where did you find out, when did you find out that you were learning these kind of things? Well, learning, I'm still learning uh, every day. I begin now, I begin to think I know something about photography after all these years, Kim. After uh, 40 years? That's, but, but I began to... I began to learn to see things. Uh, when I'm on the street at different time of day, or any time of weather, uh, I'm looking at things. I'm looking at shape, form, light on it. The boy play of light. And I've got to study the light, the intensity of light. Because uh, uh, that's what we have to work with, cameraman, is light. It doesn't matter uh, what kind of light, as long as if you're going to do color, because you have to have a certain... Uh, for Calvin, you know, uh, but if black and white, heck, you can take any kind of light. You can take a lantern, as long as enough to get an exposure. True. And with fast film today, uh, you can, you know, right. we can get as things long as you can. more realistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, a thing that, uh, when I say realistic, is uh, the way the thing actually should look. And if it should actually look that way, the light should come from these different sources where it, it shouldn't be always spotlighted. Uh, you take most of the pictures you see with all these spotlights coming down. A man walks down the floor, you see eight and nine shadows walking around. Well, in a daytime shot, uh, if it's day, uh, the light only comes from a window or an open door inside. There's no spotlights coming from it. In a nightclub, yes, you can have different sources, because the lights from all over, it all depends, you see. You light a nightclub quite different, you would, here yeah, sitting in this house, mm -hmm. that's right. And after all, the story, you see, the subject, the story, is, uh, we're all subservient to the story. Yeah, that's right. Now, now being uh, a cameraman, knowing the technique, you know, I can take lights and Light any way I want. Use all the cookalores sure. to decorate the wall. And, but uh, what for? That's right. Is it right for this story? Mm -hmm. After making so many pictures, uh, I don't like to repeat the same things over in the lighting. I've seen things been done, you know, and after 47 years, well, you, you, you begin to say, well, wait a minute. And that's when you really start working because you, the person like myself, I've become very self-critical of my work. Uh, there are very few pictures I make today that I'm real happy with. Now, I like that, you see. But I've been made some, I wish I could do it over again. Oh, yeah. uh, I see the mistakes. And, uh, well, <clears throat> I begin to feel a little free now uh, uh, with my work, with the lighting and the camera. A cameraman, people don't realize it, but they, uh, they have an executive position. They've got a lot of things to deal with. Uh, electrician, uh, props and uh, grips and uh, hairdressers, meal, makeup. Meal time. Oh, and uh, yeah. Uh, no penalties. And you got this, and you still got to get out a good-looking picture. Well, I think there's a more challenge today, Cam, now, photographically speaking, and all the way down in making a movie. Because the audience, are not uh, the average 12, 13-year-old uh, mind, as 
they used to say. The television and radio, these are, kids are very bright today, you know, and, they, and you can't fool them. You, they, they want, they want to, to see your real stuff, and they're after knowledge, and you can't kid them. They're way ahead of us. So uh, I think all the way down, not just photography, I mean to say from story-wise, acting-wise, directing-wise, sets and everything else. And we mustn't take it for granted. That was legendary cinematographer James Wong Howe, ASC, in an archival conversation with associate member Kemp Niver. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Vimeo, and Twitter. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including cinematographer profiles, reprints of articles from vintage issues, more podcasts, new products and services, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. TheASC.com This episode was mixed by Rob Grannis and recorded in part at Brickshop Audio in New York City. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.